Hello, this is Father David Nix on the Padre Peregrino Podcast. Today is Theology and Current Events, and today we call this History of Catholic Rules on Fasting, and I'm with my friend, Mr. Matthew Please. Matthew, thanks for joining me today. Oh, thanks, Father. I've really looked forward to this podcast for a while. Um, it's a topic I care a lot about, so thank you for having me. Me too. I've, I've actually been looking forward to this podcast for a while, too. Let me give uh, Matthew's bio here. Matthew is a third-order Dominican who resides in Chicago, Illinois. He is a practicing certified public accountant, author, and catechist. He's the president of catechismclass.com. That is catechismclass.com, an online-based organization whose that's online based not online comma based online based organization whose mission is to make the best in catholic religious education and sacramental preparation available to those who need it he's an expert in catholic fasting and abstinence having written many articles and a book on the topic which i just bought recently matthew also creates a variety of catholic content including a monthly piece on apologetics and and catechesis for catholic family news that many of you are familiar with a weekly column for the Fatima Center, and a monthly piece on Catholic customs at 1 Peter 5. He's also the author of Catholic book summaries, 54 traditional and contemporary classics, Eschatology, the Catholic study of the four last things, Understanding the Precepts of the Church, the Roman Catechism Explained for the Modern World, the Definitive Guide to Catholic Fasting and Abstinence, the one I just said I got, and Restoring Lost Customs of Christendom. That is his newest And Matthew spends his leisure time traveling and reading and writing and running marathons and enjoying Catholic culture. And I had the uh, joy of meeting Matthew in person down in Florida just about a month ago. And he seems like my layman doppelganger, how many things that we uh, both like to do and teach uh, without any competition between us. It's funny, we both love teaching catechism and thinking through the ascetical history of the church and... um, we, uh, I guess I only met you last year in Chicago, but mm-hmm. um, why I always say to you off the air, why I think today is so interesting is, you know, we're calling this history of Catholic rules on fasting, but we all want to know what made saints saints. And in the traditional movement, there's a lot of people talking about doctrine and liturgy as well. They should be clearly from the books you've written. You're very, very interested in that. But I think the third missing piece for all of this, um, besides doctrine and liturgy, is the ascetical life. And the ascetical life means what you deny yourself so as to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And I really should have had Matthew on a month ago before everyone got started on this. But here's how we're going to do this. Some of you have seen Matthew's work on uh, Dr. Kwasniewski's pages on 1 Peter 5. And most of us look at these, his very advanced charts that look at what was allowed in the first century, second century, third century, 12th century, 15th century. And like, like me, you probably go left to right on this. Well, today we're going to go backwards in history. And what we're going to see is the dialing down of the fasting requirements in Lent in the Catholic Church did not only get dialed down in the last 50 years, not only the last 100 years, but we're really going to see there was kind of a significant relaxing every 200 years. Um, So what I thought would be fascinating, this is what I've asked Matthew on my, on my show to talk about today is we're going to go backwards to see what was reduced. And obviously we could talk about Ember days and Advent and all that stuff. And Matthew can certainly pepper that in, but I'm, I'm especially interested 
in the history of Catholic rules on fasting in Lent in the mm-hmm. great fast. And we'll expand that also if he wants to, to the Septuagesima season, but especially what the Easterners call the great fast. Does that sound like a good plan today, Matthew? That sounds great. It's something that I care a lot about and it doesn't matter when you're listening. If this is new to you, if it's not new to you, it doesn't matter. Um, Lent is still here. You know, as our Lord talks about in the parable, everybody who came into the vineyard received the same wage of the end. And one of the reasons the church gives us that parable uh, before the beginning of Lent is maybe you missed the first two weeks. Maybe you've had a bad start. Maybe you didn't even have any real resolutions. It's okay. You can get the same reward at the end of Easter. It doesn't matter when you join. So if you feel inspired today to pick up some voluntarily disciplines as our forefathers did under obligation, but you want to do so out of devotion, you can certainly do so and share in the same reward. So it's not like you missed the beginning of Lent. This is interesting. I'll keep him in mind for next year. No, you can totally live it now. I like that a lot because we're putting this up the Monday after the second Sunday of Lent. And um, I think that's that's really great encouragement because, you know, a lot of people look at the the bare minimum that was required. And, and here's why I think the ascetical life is so important. You know, when like you people like you and me Matthew we put the emphasis on catechesis because there's such a missing hole in that and I'm glad that you and I talk so much about catechesis but you had people who may have had a little bit of catechesis say in 16th century Spain maybe mm-hmm. they went to mass a couple times a month um they probably weren't receiving holy communion because you just didn't do it very much so maybe you got people in say Spain 16th century not living in sanctifying grace and maybe they've heard some sermons they've been to mass but here's what's so weird they would see someone like St. Teresa of Avila walk into a town in 16th century Spain, and there was this cloud of grace surrounding her that people would just convert upon being in her presence. They say the same thing about St. Catherine of Siena in 13th century Italy, or when she crossed, you know, she was able just in her presence, demons left. There were people who were possessed that had been taught, taken to exorcists all over Europe, and then just being in her presence in the 13th century, the demons left. St. Francis Xavier, he would come into India, raise the dead, but just people being in his presence, this atmosphere of grace, he baptized several hundred thousand in the Far East. Well, the missing key to all this, it wasn't just that he spoke orthodoxy or spoke traditional Catholicism. That's the very, very bare minimum. It's because they took the ascetical life. It's because they took fasting so seriously. And so when we look at the missionary aspect of the church, when we look at why the saints made all these conversions. It's because I'm not saying God functions tit for tat. God functions everything quid pro quo, but even then, you know, I'll put it this way. The more you empty yourself, the more the Holy spirit fills you. And so what I find so fascinating about the missionary aspect of the church is that it does seem it's not a one-to-one correlation because we're not, we're not talking about Pelagianism where everyone pulls themselves up to heaven by their own bootstraps, but there's somewhat of a correlation between how much you fast and how many people's lives you affect. And, and this is because to go from the purgative stage of prayer to the illuminative stage of prayer to the unitive stage of prayer, um, you have to deny yourself. And at that unitive stage of prayer, people all around you convert. Like my patron saint is Saint um, Anthony of Padua. I remember reading one of his sermons and with, with great respect to this man who had the entire Bible memorized, I found that one of his sermons very boring. And I thought, how did this guy... This saint, this priest who who could just give basic truths, why why were there miracles happening and all these people converting? And it's because he was so united to God. Why? Because he fasted hardcore. And mm-hmm. so um, even though we're only bound by the new code of canon law, the 1983 code of canon law, 
Um, and that's this is where we're going to go backwards through this. We're going to see the basically the apostolic uh, basis for this that that brought about why we have a you know a billion Catholics in the world now. And I would say the ascetical life, the life of fasting, is so key to that. So Matthew, let's mm-hmm. let's bring it back. What's required in the 1983 code in mm-hmm. fasting? And then I'm just going to wind you up and let yep. you go. And sounds good. I'll, I'll say one thing I'll things. add though is to, yeah. to the names you added. One of my favorite saints is St. Patrick. And a lot of people mm-hmm. think about St. Patrick and what he did as a missionary endeavors in Ireland. And what a lot of people don't realize is if you have the very old breviary, not even the 1961, but the one beforehand where you have much longer readings <laughs> and matins, it really goes over in great detail the penance and your austerity. If I don't know if you recall, but he would pray all 150 Psalms each night. And he would have a routine for 50 of them were said kneeling in water. And he would, it also talks about the great links he went to for fasting before all of his missionary endeavors. So I think if you look at the lives of all the great missionary saints, one thing you never talk about, or even all charitable saints, you don't emphasize enough their fasting. Even St. Nicholas, St. Nicholas, you know, who we think about great patron saint of charity. He fasted even from his mother's womb from on Wednesdays and Fridays. Wow. So even as an infant, he was weaned to fast those days. So there's no great saint I think you can think of that did not live a life of fasting, even beyond the minimum required by the church's law. Absolutely. My mom's four grandparents are from Ireland and I've been fascinated a little bit recently with just the Irish monks and they would do all 150 Psalms in the ice cold Irish sea or whatever's on the West side in Galway. They would be in the ocean uh, sometimes up, up to water. And I didn't know what you just told me about St. Patrick, but they obviously got that from him that Mm -hmm. the ascetical life was so key to this. So they would do all 150 Psalms in ice cold water up to their chest frequently or I mentioned St. Catherine of Siena. Um, as you probably know, Matthew, she lived on just the Eucharist um, for a large chunk of her life. And so mm-hmm. this is, uh, again, we're not talking about earning God's love, but when he's all you need, he's he gives himself to you. It's just, it's really that simple. And of course, all of this, so I will talk about, you know, the rules in 83 code right now, but of course, all of this obviously comes from Christ. So when we're talking about all these rules. Remember, Christ our Lord fasted. Fasted in the desert and Christ is God. So if God himself can fast, who are we to excuse ourselves from fasting? He gave us the model. He went into the desert to be tempted and to show us how to overcome temptation because the devil often attacks people who are alone. He showed himself how to overcome the devil, of course, by fasting, by prayer. You know, we have a almsgiving too. So just, I always like to keep that as like the North stars and all these discussions. So some people hung up on this rule. You got that rule. You got that rule that time. Christ himself wants us to fast. He said to his, you know, his followers that they would be characterized by their fasting. He said, when you fast, not if you fast. Mm -hmm. So it makes sense that we would always be noted for our fasting. But even in 1983, of course, that's quite a significant reduction from obviously the time that we had, because most people are familiar now with the 1983 code, which largely took Paul VI apostolic constitution that he issued in the middle of February, 1966, and they incorporated those principles. So per the 1983 code, the age of fasting uh, begins at 18. Previously, it was 21. Uh, and it concludes at midnight when an individual completes their 59th birthday. And people are familiar with there's only really two days of mandatory fasting in the 1983 code. Obviously, Ash Wednesday, 
and Good Friday. And then, uh, you know, the code also mentions that every single Friday in the year, unless it's a solemnity, is supposed to be a day of um, of penance as well. And um, this is one thing that obviously a lot of places do a very bad job with is they emphasize that during Lent, that penance absolutely must be abstinence from meat, from flesh meat of mammals and from birds. Uh, and other parts of the year, it can be a suited um, substitute penance in some locations. But I will note if somebody's listening from, for instance, England or Wales, no, it has to be uh, abstinence from meat there for a change a couple of years ago. But that's the current 1983 code. As I said, it largely took these changes that occurred in uh, 1966 and it kind of bound them together. Um, yeah. Beforehand, we had all the, the other canon law, and there was actually canon law in the Middle Ages. It wasn't called canon law in the same sense uh, by year, but that is the new canon law. And so if you don't, you know, if you're listening to this outside of Lent or you're thinking about what you're going to do outside of Lent, y- yes, you can substitute a different penance on Fridays. But the usually the advice I give everybody is just stay meat-free 52 Fridays a year, um, unless that Friday happens to have what maybe 100 years ago was actually a holy day of obligation. Uh, like if Christmas falls on a Friday, we're going to hear from Matthew, even that, that wasn't the case, uh, you know, before Gregory the Great. But my understanding is 100 years ago, uh, like 1915 or whatever, um, every Friday was meat free unless it was actually a holy day of obligation. But we're going to hear so many exceptions and then exceptions to the exceptions and exceptions to the exceptions to the exceptions that it's really just better to just say, I'm going to stay meat free all 52 Fridays a year. Right. And I should add that that is, that is the church law. So to violate it is a mortal sin. This is mm-hmm. governed by the church's precepts. So if somebody does not observe fasting and is bound to fast on Ash Wednesday or Good Friday, that is a mortal sin. If somebody eats flesh meat on a prohibited day, that is a mortal sin. All of this obviously coming from the church has the authority by Christ to make these changes. And one thing I think is very uh, important to mention and father Michael Mueller in his, um, Explanation of Christian doctrine in the late 1800s mentions, importantly, it's not the food, but the disobedience that defiles a man. Because some people actually in some centuries would say that evil spirits hide in certain foods. So to wow. consume the food, you would eat the spirit. That is not the case. So that obviously because of Christ's coming, it's no longer, for instance, that pork is evil. You know, like whereas the Jews would not eat it, there's nothing evil but any certain food on a on a day in which the church legislates you may eat anything. So it's important to keep in mind the food is not evil. It's the disobedience sure. that is the evil part. And I mean, I don't want to detain us too long in this. And, and I, I get very annoyed when people remind me that a mortal sin has to be done with full knowledge and full, like, of course, people like you and me who teach the catechism know that. So I'm not, certainly not correcting mm-hmm. you on this, but one thing for our listeners to realize is, you know, 95% of the priests of the world don't realize that even the new code of canon law requires some penance on Friday. Um, and so if those 95% of the priests are teaching all their people you only have to do penance on Fridays in Lent. Well, then there is some reduced culpability. So I guess we would say it's a grave, it's a grave sin. Uh, but most, I'll be honest, most Catholics I talk to have no idea they're supposed to say meat free um, all Fridays of the entire year. And if you point out to them, the new code of canon law has this little asterisk that says, or you can do a substitutionary penance. They don't care at all. I mean, the fact that one random priest in a little blue habit uh, is telling them something that no priest has ever told them about an asterisk in a code of canon law 
There's no and way. I'm going differ to... on your area too, as you mentioned. Some people are the rules of fasting and absence differ considerably sure. depending on where you are. So certain countries have different rules. Even if we get back to the yeah. colonies, we have that discussion. Different colonies had different rules, so it's very yeah. localized on these uh, particular, you know, exceptions and that. But it is also worthy to mention that. If you uh, if you break the fast, for instance, on Ash Wednesday, that is a mortal sin. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously fasting uh, under this code of canon law yeah. uh, is going to be one meal. And then you can have these two snacks, you know, they don't equal the meal. Is yeah. basically what, I just what mean it, like how many one mortal sin, though. But if you on a Friday eat yeah. meat multiple times, that is a mortal sin. Each time you intentionally sure. eat meat. Yeah, so, I believe you. Yeah, you, know, you have to confess mortal sins in number and in kind. So right. some people also are not taught that too. So yeah. if you do, if you, if you're on your conscience, you're like, well, I violated that. I need to confess that. If you ate me more than once, you do have to come up with a reasonable number. If you if you can right. yeah. estimate it, but it's not. I agree. Else. No, I just meant like I mean, you. I'm sure you've met British priests. I met British priests. What percentage of British priests do you even think know there's a different rule in England than the United right. States? Right. Probably very, very few. But, yeah. you know, our, our Lord talks about, you know, he, you know, you want to be last in the kingdom of God. You, know, you want to be focused on all these because the legitimate authority, if they make a rule, we have to abide by that rule. These ecclesiastical sure. laws are obviously on the same as natural law or divine law, but we're still bound by laws. Still the same thing with yeah. obviously valid secular laws too, instituted by a valid authority. So uh, just, you know, keep that in mind. But those are the rules, you know, to answer your question that obviously, um, Concern people now, the 1983 sure. code, taking those changes, which occurred after Vatican II. Um, you know, when I said Paul VI issued that document uh, on fasting and absence in 1966, uh, what that document did is it, it allowed the changing of Friday absence to an act of penance at the discretion of local ordinaries, gave the authority to the Episcopal conferences and how the universal rules could be applied in their region. And abstinence, which previously always began at age seven, began at age 14 instead. Uh, and additionally, the obligation of fasting on the Ember Days and all the other vigils uh, was abolished. So that changed in 66. Uh, so to rewind the clock a little bit, you got 83 changing when uh, fasting began the age slightly. 66 changed when abstinence uh, age changed a little bit. So um, sometimes when you see these old things, you have different ages for that mm-hmm. reason. Things are changing and things are changing in the, um, you know, the previous century rather quickly, too. Uh, but all of that is the changes after Vatican II. And I like that you bring this back to Christ in the desert. You know, as we're going to see how intense the rules were in past centuries, like if you can't do the basics now, then you're really not studying or really concerned about anything that God has given us. Um, there's a lot of people, you know, a lot of liberal priests would say, do you really think God cares what I eat? Do you think God's going to, he really cares what you do on Ash Wednesday or, or Good Friday? Yeah, I actually do. I actually do. Think he God gave cares. a law to Adam and Eve in the garden not to eat of a certain fruit and the yeah. disobedience from eating something you shouldn't have brought about sin in the world. So I like to remind people on that, you know, go back point. to the garden because the problem of original sin was the violation of fasting and abstinence brought about originally. Right. So when people and say it's not a big deal, it was a big deal then, it's still a big deal now. And I asked um, a very, very well-known exorcist and um, another very well-known YouTube theologian, was this, what was that sin of eating? Was it 
was it a sixth or ninth commandment sin, all these other things. And they both, both of them came back and said, no, no, no. All the fathers say it was literally eating. It wasn't, there was no, you know, I, I grew up in such a liberal Catholic education. I thought this was a reference to something else. No, um, the fathers say it was the, the first sin, the original sin was eating. Mm-hmm. As you just said, yeah. so, so glut, you you have not only the disobedience there, but you have the gluttony coming in too. Yeah. So attacking this by our fasting, we're really attacking the original sin, the concupiscence yes. from that. That obviously, you know, we can have original sin washed off of us, you know, with uh, baptism. The concupiscence remains. How do you conquer uh, concupiscence? Growing in temperance and the virtues. How do you grow in temperance? Fasting is the main re- uh, way we do so. Okay, well. Let's keep going, jaunting back through history here. Yeah, so for now, when we go, you know, back before Vatican II, some people like to just roll the, you know, clock back a little bit and say, well, I, I like going to the 62 uh, Missile Mass, um, you know, and that's the kind of rules that I think we should be following. Uh, I think people will, after hopefully this discussion, realize that that is not the epitome of tradition. But what were those rules? You know, if you wanted to roll the clock back, and this uh, comes from Father Joan, uh, where he's writing, and it was adapted for the customs of the United States. And um, so as of 1962 in the United States, complete absence was to be required on all Fridays of the years, Ash Wednesday, the Vigil of the Immaculate Conception and Christmas, and partial absence was to be observed on Ember Wednesday and Ember Saturdays and on the Vigil of Pentecost. So that's uh, absence. Days of fasting as of 1962 were all the weekdays of Lent, the Ember Days, and the Vigil of Pentecost. And additionally, it's noted that if a vigil were to fall on a Sunday, then the law of fasting and absence that otherwise would have fallen on the day, for instance, you know, the vigil of Christmas, if it fall on a Sunday, no fasting or absence required that year. That was the rule governing 1962. Okay. We're going to go back a little bit further, though. Uh, some This is what I talk about a lot in my book, too. The definitive guide to Catholic fasting and absence is uh, Pope Pius XII changed a lot of things. Really did. It, um, a lot of people say Pius XII, um, you know, let's just roll back the clock to that time. Everything was great before Vatican II. Not the case. Uh, if you really look at that, he really accelerated changes to fasting and absence. For instance, if you roll back in just some years, in 1941, he allowed bishops worldwide to dispense entirely from fasting and absence, except on Ash Wednesday and Good Friday, provided there was absence from meat every Friday and fast and absence on those two days, as well as the vigil of the Assumption and Christmas. Uh, eggs and milk uh, were permitted at breakfast in the evening. And then uh, also during the, his reign in 1956, uh, per a uh, decree that was issued, Holy Saturday's fast and absence was extended from noon to midnight. So uh, Pius XII made a lot of changes to the church's liturgy, uh, of course, during Holy Week. Um, you know, uh, thankfully, a lot of people are in tradition are understanding those changes weren't really all that traditional. Uh, but one of those changes was when you have, obviously, uh, the vigil of Easter uh, occurring in the evening. Uh, you wouldn't stop the fast at noon on Holy Saturday. You would extend it uh, until you heard the vigil. So those are some of the changes he made. But he did a lot of you know exceptions to allow people to um, dispense from fast and abstinence. Uh, bishops, that is. Um, do you think, do you think maybe during one of the World reasons, War II? Uh, yeah, I was, was going to say that. Do you think? Region. Do you think maybe World War II is a good reason for that? Considering people were all these people were starving and you had all these you know soldiers on the front maybe they had a little can thing of, of right uh i guess they didn't eat spam back then but sardines or i guess sardines is fish but do you, mm-hmm. you know um two world wars changed a lot for yes. 
Catholicism. I think a lot of the things that we talk about with exceptions and dispensations is done for a seemingly good reason. You know, okay. there's a great need there. And I talk about this in the book, too, because there's a whole section on the Eucharistic fast, uh, because for a, almost the entire church's history, you cannot receive Holy Communion if you have not fasted basically from midnight on, from food, water, everything whatsoever that you take in with your mouth. Uh, that was the case basically until 1953, when Pius XII was the one to first allow you could have water. Uh, that was the change in 53. And then in 57, you only needed a fast for three hours. Uh, okay. Those were significant changes brought about in large part due to the aftermath after World War II, which allowed evening masses for the first time ever. Right. And there's a lot of traditional priests that go for the three hour thing. I think we have to start aiming for that midnight thing. Yes. Um, but yeah, two world wars changed a lot. And I think this is what I want people here as as we're listening is that whatever Christ gave to the apostles uh, was probably the ideal we should aim for. And then he allowed, I would say maybe he didn't inspire, but he allowed popes in future years to grant concessions to weakness, but love goes beyond weakness. Or at least I should say, if you look at this from real Pauline set of um, data points on theology is um, you can be weak and God is going to fill that in with his strength. And so this is the encouragement to go back to the early years Whatever Christ gave in the early centuries, I do believe he allowed these popes to give concessions to weakness, but there's going to be some listeners who want to go beyond that. Okay, Mr. Please. So what comes next? Pius Twelfth. rewind it a little bit before that. Yep. And well, the last thing I'll say is the, about Pius Twelfth before we rewind is um, there's actually people still old enough now to remember some of these. So some of this might be interesting to some people, or at least you've heard it maybe from your parents or your grandparents. I actually, from my book, on fasting, there was a person who actually told me a story that she remembers as a young child in a Catholic elementary school. Before the changes in 1953, the nuns would ensure that the water fountains were covered so the children would not accidentally drink water before going to morning mass. So there are still some people who remember the one the Eucharistic fast was still from midnight on and absolutely nothing, no water, um, no food at all. So just something to keep in mind. But now as we start going back, you know, a little bit further, we're going to really go beyond when people alive today are going to be able to remember. And for many respects, a lot of this then you get into, this is new to them. They don't know this history because there's no one alive now who really talked about it. So when we go back uh, a little bit beforehand, I want to kind of highlight what happened in the period, um, you know, from Pius XII to up until before the 1917 code. A lot of people think, you know, well, we have the 1983 code, then we have the 1917 code. And there's actually a lot of changes, even as I just talked about, in that in-between period, and one of which... In 1917, uh, Pope uh, Benedict. Oh, wait, real uh, quick, Matt. Let me me just say something real quick. I think one reason where it's going to be good that we're going to be aiming back to do these things out of love instead of rules is this. Um, Someone sent me a video of a woman named Ruby Frankie who just got something like 30 years in prison for starving and binding and uh, keeping her kids from water, all these other things. And, I mean, she did uh, a lot of horrible things to them, but Mm -hmm. she was basically in a cult in utah and again her name's ruby frankie this is all over the news this is anything private she just got like 30 years for um keeping her kids from food and water and all these other things and i think with the rise of all these cults right now maybe it's good god allowed maybe he didn't inspire maybe it's good that you know the rules are so loose right now so that we can do all these things through love instead of through rules i don't know 
just a thought out there. I just thought it was kind of That's, that is true. Though I have read, you know, Dom Jay talks about that shared days of penance are more meritorious uh, mm-hmm. than uh, voluntary penance. So there's something to be said about, yeah, we don't have to do these right now, so we certainly can. And thus, it will obviously in a state of grace, we can offer them, and we should offer them for various intentions, for our own sure. sins, for this family, for conversion. But there's something about the shared act of penance that's very important to the life of the church, and thus very meritorious too. So not only do I want people to say some of these things, I want to adopt these older mm-hmm. practices, because my forefathers did, and I want to do more, and I want to offer it to our Lord, and I want to make reparation. There's something uh, to be said for that. But I also want people to think, I want the church to restore these disciplines to, to the church. So this is the minimum now on church law. And of course, remember when we're talking about like this is the minimum, there's exceptions too. So even in, mm-hmm. you know, when I talked about the 1962 rules or these rules, you know, before Pius XII, obviously, for instance, if you're pregnant or nursing, fasting does not apply. So I have a whole article on the A Catholic Life blog website going over throughout the centuries, different exceptions. So certain manual laborers had exceptions, pregnant women had exceptions, but the church was very more um, uh, concerned about giving exceptions. There were exceptions, but it wasn't like, oh, whatever, it doesn't really matter, do whatever you want. Whereas now they say pregnant women have whatever you want, you need to meet on Friday. That was not the case. When you say say the exceptions they did, like they would look at it case by case is what you mean. Um, no, like for instance, say you're a pregnant woman, uh-huh. uh, you would, you would not be obliged, to okay. fast, but you yeah. still had to abstain on uh, days of absence. You still had to abstain. So they would sure. look at that particular case and, uh, bishops had, you know, some discretion to, you know, maybe to, uh, grant dispensations for this or that, or St. Yeah. Patrick's day in certain instances or certain places. So you had, you have that too, but the church had more fasting days. So thus exceptions and situations kind of played in, but then you also had, obviously, certainly when you roll back the clock enough, the people who loved our Lord and who actually felt maybe a, a little bit of sadness that they were didn't didn't have to or weren't able to. They were exempt because they were not able to. They're sick. You know, they, they have cancer. They're in the hospital. They don't have to fast. But there's something they feel like they're losing out on that practice of joining in the overall Christian community. And so they can, they can ignore the dispensation and go for it, just like someone dying of cancer on narcotics can take the narcotics as long as it doesn't send them into respiratory arrest. But they can heroically forego that. Um, Absolutely. Same thing we talked about when fasting ends at age 60. Yeah. It doesn't mean like when you're 62, I'm, you don't, you don't have to fast, but it doesn't mean you're not allowed to fast. You certainly can. If you're feeling fine, you're not obliged by church law. Sure. Go ahead and keep fasting. And last uh, thing so I'm going to say for a while, because we got to, we got to get to 1917 and all the way to 33 AD. So last thing I'm going to say for a while, I do agree with you. The communal aspect is so important, but with the rules so low these days, it is interesting to see groups popping up. Like you run a telegram channel that's keeping people together who want to be heroic and fasting. You look at things like Exodus 90. I know a lot of traditionalists are against it, but I've seen so much good fruit and so many conversions come from it. I'm a huge fan of uh, Exodus 90. So, or Septua Jazima 70. That's your group. Yeah, tell, very what is similar. Uh, it's run out of like an Australia group, but it's very similar to Exodus 90 with the discipline, yeah. but more geared towards liturgical living because it's Septuagesima and the yep. traditional uh, So mass. people are finding groups to fast since, since the rules are so low. And as you said, there's more graces for communal fasting. The funny thing is people are making their own groups. Uh, mm-hmm. It's not it's not above and beyond the Catholic Church. It's just within the Catholic Church. There's certain right. Groups. Right. I mean, even different religious orders have different fasting rules and had different changes. So I I think all of this shows that man wants to do more. He feels there's something 
lacking. And while we can and should do everything we can to help ensure the traditional mass is preserved and passed down and doctrine is taught to children and to adults and you live out the third leg of that stool of the third pillar of living a true Catholic life is the aesthetical life. And not a lot of people talk about it. That's why I talk so much about it and write so much about it, because I think it's so important. And obviously, man doesn't like penance. You know, it's not something that people naturally want to be like, I want more of it, uh, usually. But when you understand what, you know, our forefathers did, our grandparents, our great-grandparents by this era, they did all this. And, you know, Lent to them was hard. Even yeah. if you talk about, like, well, where I am in Chicago, there's plenty of places that would have Friday and and all Lent specials on egg and cheese sandwiches. Mm-hmm. Uh, that would be something that people would go and uh, you couldn't have lunch. So even people who I know of would say, you know, their parents, their dad would go work and he would have a manual job and he didn't feel like uh, he uh, did enough manual work to be exempt by the church law at the time. So he would go out and he would work and say it was hard, you know, not able to bring a lunch out working all day in the sun. And then you wait to come home to have your meal. But that's what the church required. So that's what he did. Love it. Um, I love to that, hear of heroic. Really more that. Yeah, to, to hear of heroic approaches, maybe just even mandatory approaches, whether it was heroic or mandatory, either way, Lent was hard. That's the point. That's the point mm-hmm. I want people to hear today. Okay, 1917, roll us back. Yes, yes. So between, you know, this period between Pius XII and they go back to 1917, even those, before we get to 1917, some changes happen. So in 1917, Pope Benedict XV granted the faithful of the countries in World War I uh, the privilege of transferring Saturday absence at any other day of the week except Friday and Ash Wednesday. Um, what people are a little bit surprised by there is fr- Saturday's in Lent were days of abstinence as well in the 1970 code. So that was the change there. In 1919, Cardinal Gibbons in America granted his request of transferring Saturday absence to Wednesdays for all bishop dioceses in the U.S. And that permission was frequently invoked really up until 1931. But then at, then at that point, they said individual bishops rather than the whole U.S. needs to start making this uh, petition. So there's even some watering down uh, and exceptions granted after 1917. But what is 1917? That's like a big, you know, um, milestone in uh, in the church's law. So the days of obligatory fasting as listed in the 1917 Code of Canon Law were the 40 days of Lent that include Ash Wednesday, Good Friday, and Holy Saturday until noon at that point. Remember I said by Pius XII it was extended uh, till, um, till midnight. Okay. It was noon in the 1970 and, Code. And I'm, and breaking, then, I'm breaking my own resolution already, but two quick questions. So I'd like you to um, define fasting and abstinence really quick for our listeners. And then also give us a quick look. What would what would Lent look like for an average layperson in 1910? And what would it look like in 1920? Um, I know you have to go in about an hour, so we have to say it quick. So two questions, difference yeah. between fasting and abstinence. And then yes. tell us what it would look like in 1910 versus 1920. Okay, so definitions, really important. Um, And the definitions do change over time, too. So let me try to hit those. First of all, as you know, these are two different laws of the church. Fasting is different than absence, very related, but they don't always apply in the same day. So some people lump them together, they're different. So what does fasting mean? Fasting refers to how much food we eat. It means taking only one meal during a calendar day. The meal should generally be average size. Um, as overeating at that one meal is against the whole spirit uh, of fasting. Fasting generally means that the meal is to be taken also later in the day, along with the one meal up to those two snacks, which is technically called a collation of frustulum, are permitted. 
Optional though, not required. And together they can never add up to more than the size of the one meal. And obviously no other snacking is permitted in the day. In the very early church, fasting also referred to the time of the day in which you eat. Um, so it was typically later in the day, sometimes even after sunset. Now, abstinence. Uh, in this context, it refers to not eating flesh meat. So meat is the flesh meat of mammals or fowl. So beef, poultry, lamb, etc., all forbidden on days of absence. Absence um, does not currently prohibit animal byproducts like dairy, so cheese, eggs, butter, or eggs. But in the past times, rules of absence did prohibit these on certain days, especially in Lent. Also, fish currently permitted uh, under the rules of absence, along with shellfish and cold-blooded animals like alligators. But in times past, days of fat, um, there were actually a period of time in which not even fish was allowed on days of absence. So how we defined it, you know, the church, these are church laws, so the definition can change over time, too. Some people are really shocked that up until the 6th century, fish was not allowed on a day of absence. So what does absence mean now? It generally refers to not eating uh, flesh meat. And then also in times past, days of fasting were always days of abstinence, but not all days of absence are days of fasting. So you think about Friday uh, absence year long, not all of them are days of fasting, but generally beforehand, and I will talk about this in a second, all days of fasting were also days of absence. Uh, but then you also have the little, you know, little side note, partial absence comes in too. So what we mean by partial abstinence is you can only eat meat at the meal of the day, but you can't have it at the frustulum or collation snacks in the day. That is uh, no longer part of the 1983 code. If you look at anything after Vatican II, partial absence went away. Well, basically all the days of absence basically went away too and the days of fasting, so that went away. But partial absence has its origin in 1741 when Pope Benedict XIV first allowed the practice of meat on a day, but not, you know, in the snacks. That's where it's born. So it's it's only been around really for a couple hundred years. That's the definition. So we're talking about faster absence. Uh, it changes too. So when we talk about these rules, but it kind of means what time are you period are you talking? Um, so, you know, the 1917 code, like I was talking about before, um, that uh, had the 40 days of Lent, uh, the Ember days, certain vigils, uh, but not all vigils for days of fasting, uh, complete abstinence on all Fridays, including the Fridays of Lent, but all Fridays of the year. The only exception was that if a Friday outside of Lent fell on a holy day of obligation, you did not have to uh, observe the Friday abstinence. But that itself changed. Before then, that was not the case. Uh, so that was kind of a new thing with 1917 code. And Saturdays in Lent were also days per the 1917 code of complete abstinence. Uh, fasting and absence were not observed if a vigil should fall on a Sunday. That's also changed because beforehand... Um, uh, that would not be the case. And eggs and milk became universally permitted per the 1970 code. So one of these things, so if you talk about 1920 and 1900, uh, it does depend where you're looking at. Uh, so certain countries like the United States, the collation for a long time, you could have milk and eggs at that. In Ireland, you could not. So per the 1970 code of canon law, eggs and milk finally become universally permitted throughout the world on uh, throughout Lent. Whereas beforehand, some localities... Did not. Okay, uh, so let me let me just give you a real direct question then. What would an average lay Catholic in Newark, New Jersey in 1910 
eat on a Tuesday in Lent. We're not talking Fridays. We're not talking Ash Wednesday. Mm-hmm. Um, we're we're talking a, an average Tuesday in Lent. A Catholic, Newark, New Jersey. The year is nineteen ten. What is he or she gonna eat all day? Um, well, on this particular day, they could have, since it's a Tuesday, they could have meat at the main meal of that day, but it is a fasting day and it's a day of partial absence for this particular person. Certainly some people though can kept the full absence. They're like, we're not going to, we're not going to do it. We, I mean, we could, but we're just going to keep all of Lent as, as days of absence. But that was the minimum that time on a Tuesday that happened to be after 1917, still the same. For that particular okay. Tuesday. Okay. Mm-hmm. So uh, again, the particulars do depend on the region too. A lot of what we'll talk about applies to the United States, but it's important to note that rules change in in all different countries too, uh, as well. But um, uh, and, and obviously these vigils too, I find it very interesting. Probably don't have really any time to talk about that, but also interesting. But um, if you rewind the clock a little bit more, uh, now let's talk about the time of Leo the Thirteenth. Okay, and um, and then you also have the Baltimore Council, uh, also occurring in 1884. So if you want to look in you know, 1917, Code of Canon Law, to Baltimore Council in America, 1884, uh, some of the changes, for instance, the 1970 Code of Canon Law, you could have both fish and flesh meat at the same meal. And it's on the day of partial absence when you could have meat at the main meal. Uh, beforehand, you could not. It was explicitly prohibited by Pope Benedict the Fourteenth when he first allowed partial absence in 1741. You could not have fish and flesh meat at the same meal. So no surf and turf, absolutely not. You cannot have it at the same meal. But uh, if you look at the 1884 uh, in America, explicitly uh, forbidden. So that's one of the main differences. And also the 1917 code of canon law got rid of the notion of what time in the meal a day can you have your meal? So for a long time during Lent on a fasting day, it wasn't just, I can have my meal when I have it doesn't really matter to me, but for a long time, uh, you could not have it before noon. So that's the case in Baltimore around the time of Leo the 13th to the meal could not be had earlier than noon. So only a snack. They, only a snack. Uh, only a snack, a frustulum, uh, the morning snack. How big that could be also uh, changed too. But Leo the Thirteenth, so he was a pope from 1878 to 1903. The frustulum that you could have in the morning really became universally, you know, allowed and permitted by his time. If you go back to the time of Alphonsus Liguori, you have it uh, to some extent. But that's kind of a was a newer thing to make it introduced to the laity. Okay. Uh, and anybody who needs it or wants it at that time, what can you have at that? That changed uh, too, but that's kind of how you roll the clock back a little bit. And um, you see, and, you know, I'm, I'm fascinated in the Fridays outside of Lent, as well as the vigil, uh, the vigils that happen before fast. I'm fascinated in that too. But as we go forward in today's podcast, let's just stick with what happens in Lent. What were the requirements in Lent as we go forward? Mm-hmm. I think that's where I think that's where you're taking us. And I think that's where we yes. are. But yeah, yeah, that, that is where we are. So if you look at, you know, the Baltimore Manual, this is something they released. And this is something that will be applied during that. So this is 1884 here in America. It said only one full meal is allowed. It uh, cannot be taken any earlier than noon. Besides this full meal, a collation of eight ounces is allowed. If the full meal is taken about the middle of the day hour, the collation should be taken in the evening. If the full meal is taken later in the day, the collation could be taken at noon. 
besides the full meal and the collation, a custom has been made lawful for the faithful to take up to two ounces of bread, but without butter and a cup of some warm liquid coffee or tea in the morning. And it's important. And and this is what that uh, document for American Catholics mentions is quote, this is important to observe for by means of this, many persons are enabled and therefore obliged to keep the fast who would not otherwise be able to do so. So, they're saying, you know, you got to, at this time, you know, you got all this, you can have the snack, you know, late in the day, you can have a snack in the morning. Don't, you don't feel like you cannot observe the Lenten fast. You certainly uh, can do so. Um, so that was the case. So also another thing to note is that there was concessions made by Leo Thirteenth in the late 19th century for the Frustula uh, and further restricted strict absence. For instance, uh, it was allowed for the use of eggs and milk products at the evening collation daily during Lent and at the principal meal when Lent was not allowed. He also further allowed a small piece of bread in the morning with a beverage, possibly taking um, uh, one thing to note is that um, you could even use lard and meat drippings uh, in with that too. That That's actually a radical new thing too. As long as it wasn't a Friday in Lent, you could use that. Correct. Correct. He's talking about certain day, other days of the week. For instance, that Tuesday. Um, those exempt from the law of fasting are permitted to eat meat, eggs, milk more than once a day. Beforehand, uh, you couldn't even eat those more than once a day, even if you couldn't uh, observe the law of fasting. Um, so in 1886, Leo XIII allowed meat, eggs, and milk products on Sundays of Lent and at the main meal on every weekday of Lent, except the Wednesday and Friday uh, here in the United States, Um one thing to note there that is actually pretty surprising to people is beforehand, if we go before this, that even the Sundays of Lent were days of absence. You know, there was a period of time when Sundays, all of Lent was a day of absence. And what I mean by absence here is absence from animal products too. So no dairy products, no meat, no cheese, no eggs. So if we go back in time, you'll see that there was a divergence in what we meant by abstinence. For every other day in the year, absence means no meat. But during Lent, when we say abstinence, we mean no animal products either. So, you, so um, you can have fish, but you can't have eggs, and you can't have anything that comes from a cow, for instance. So, if you go back a little bit before Leo the Thirteenth, if you ask people there, what was Lenten Sundays like? They were also days of absence. They weren't just a free for all for whatever you give up, you can have. It's a Sunday. There should be no penance on a Sunday. That's actually a radical notion right now that I hear so many people claim that it's Sunday. Do whatever you want. If you go back just a little bit more than 100 years ago, that was absolutely not the case. Because for them, um, Lent was a marathon. It began on Ash Wednesday, and there was no, the race is, you know, taking a break this day. You're going till Easter. You know, some days are harder than others, but you are you are in the race. And so another odd modern, myth. another odd modern myth that's not just among bad Catholics. There's even a modern myth among good Catholics that the Eastern Catholics and the Eastern Orthodox are so much better at fasting than Western Catholics. Now that is true nowadays, but if you just go back 100, 150 years, you're going to see these really hadn't diverged. I mean, Western Catholics in 1850 were expected to do what a lot of Eastern Orthodox Greek monasteries are expected to do right now. No meat, no fish, no oil, no um, no lard, no dairy. All this 150 years ago, this marathon, Catholics in the West, Roman Catholics in the West were running just as hardcore, right. uh, almost, almost, not exactly. Almost. Just as hardcore. With the use of oil specifically, that would be a little bit different. Oils was the difference. 
Okay. Yeah, oil is going to be the difference because oil has been allowed in the in the West for much longer. Okay. Um, but most people do say like, oh, the East is you know way better and above, and and now it is. But you're right. For a long time, the fasting practices were very much the same. Same. Uh, yep. Are, very very close. And that's something people. I really want our listeners to keep that on the back burner as they listen because there's a great fascination in the Byzantine rites right now, which is great. I love I love all the Eastern rites, but it's a modern myth that they've always fasted better than the West. Right. So um, let's, let's pick up the timeline too. So now let's go back before Leo the 13th, and we're going to rewind the clock a little bit more to 1741. So, I mean, we can talk all about American colonies and differences, but we just don't have time on that. Uh, but it just suffice to say that in America, it because you were an American didn't mean you had the same fasting days or the same holy days as somebody else. If you were generally in a territory that came over from England, you'd be very different than this French uh, former territory or this Spanish one. And even in these English ones, it's very different. People in America should know that Maryland was very much the Catholic colony and it had different rules than other English territories. So I have a whole separate article on that covering the book too. Don't have time for that right now. Um, but that's to say that even to Lent, there were there were differences. But the rewind the clock, a major milestone difference uh, that uh, is worth mentioning is what I talked about before, is what Pope Benedict XIV did. So he reigned from 1740 to 1758. And on May 31st, 1741, he radically allowed uh, the permission to eat meat on fasting days uh, in Lent for the very first time. And he, but he explicitly prohibited the consumption of fish and flesh meat at the same time. And of course, you're not but, talking Fridays and like, you mean the other one, ones besides Friday? Correct. The other ones besides Friday. So beforehand, like I said, even Sundays, Mondays, Tuesdays, all of that, no meat whatsoever in land. And, and the interesting thing is, if you read, like, he actually felt like he was pressured. He had all this pressure around him. Remember, this is after the Renaissance. This is after the Protestant revolt, you know, and, and, he, and he just he feels like he's caving in. And, he, and so he has to, you know, give into this. But then at the same time, he gives us that beautiful quote where he says, the observance of Lent is the badge of Christian warfare. And by it, we prove ourselves not to be enemies of the cross of Christ, by we avert the scourges of divine justice, and we gain strength against the princes of darkness, for it shields us with heavenly help. And then he adds, should mankind grow remiss in their observance of Lent, it would be a detriment to God's glory, a disgrace to the Catholic religion, and a danger to Christian souls. Neither can it be doubted that such negligence would become the source of misery to the world, of public calamity, and of private woe. Amazing. So I think it's almost like um, it's, it's very disappointing that he finally gave in to that uh, to allow me because I really believe there should be no meat at all in Lent. Because if you, when we go back before, there's no meat. There's no meat in Lent before 1741. He gives in, but then he also really implores people to do more than the minimum. You know, that's basically what he was saying. Because if you we grow uh, remiss in this observance of Lent, it will be to the detriment of God's church to all these sores of of nations will suffer too in the secular sense too. And, and of course, too, something else to mention is that and Matthew, uh, Matthew, you know, you and I were talking before I hit the record button, how free we feel. We really feel very free when we are generous with God and Lent. So why did a Pope who's a good father like him feel that giving in, giving concessions to weakness would be the right thing, knowing that the faithful all over the globe felt more freedom 
in giving their hearts generously to God through a very intense Lent? What do you, I mean, that's probably not a fair question because I'm asking you to, to give the intention of a Pope in the 8th, 17th or 18th century. But if you had to guess, yeah. uh, I mean, you mentioned the Protestant revolt, you would almost think he'd say, this is how we're going to stay separate from the Protestants even more by not reducing this fast. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I do think if you look at the historical sense, you know, the Protestant revolt was was very significant. And also we have a total change afterwards, too, especially with the Renaissance. Man became so intent on pursuing, you know, these secular endeavors, too, that so many more people no longer have any interest uh, in this. So he feels like due to these, you know, let's just call them lobbyists, really, in this sense, from these nations to right around him that we want to have some meat during Lent, that, you know, this is no longer feasible. I think all these pressures uh, are really, you know, affecting him. And he's basically saying in this, I'll, I'll allow it, but, but keep observing stricter Lent is basically what he's saying. But you and I both know that minimalism tends to reign so much that people just say, what do I have to do? That's what I'll do. And no one, I mean, very few people are saying, okay, well, of course I want to do the minimum, no matter if the minimum's hard, no matter if the minimum was 1917, but I'd like to observe some of the older things too, to, to bring it back. That's just generally not the way people are. Now. And so that's maybe actually, one of the uh, things I like about the Eastern churches more than the Western churches. The Western church always kept hardcore, at least until the 20th century, very hardcore minimalistic things. And now, of course, the minimalistic is, is um, extremely low bar. But the East has a very high bar, but it's it's an ideal. And so maybe that's one reason the Eastern churches weren't, you know, hammered with so much legalism is because they kept a high bar, but you kind of got to give yourself dispensations if you needed to, where the mm-hmm. Western church was a little bit more legalistic. And even though most Western Catholics kept up with the Eastern Catholics and Eastern Orthodox from most to history, we were probably ripe for a bunch of legalistic dialing downs of the minimum, even by Rome. Right. right. That, I mean, that, that's certainly the case, too. And remember also, obviously, the church has been very uh, generous uh, in different regions. So it's it's well known that obviously the diet is going to be different in the Mediterranean climate compared to Scandinavia. So, for instance, that's why there would be exceptions given to, for instance, Scandinavians who didn't have substitutes from other products. So this is actually something that Martin Luther uh, said uh, against the church was that, you know, the church takes all this money and really bribes basically. And they build these towers because people are allowing themselves to eat milk and eggs and they're basically just buying their way out. And the church is saying, no, that this is the law, but for, we will under, we understand it's hard. So if you want to substitute that by giving alms and we have, and use these alms for charitable works. We understand that. So for this particular area, we will grant that exception. So a lot of these exceptions are generally given for concern for souls. So we talked about, you know, World War II, World War I brings about these exceptions. But the problem is people latch on to them and they're like, oh, wait, this is the way it's always been. You know, my, my mom told me it was like this. I'm, we're not going back there. This is the way it is. Yeah. We see it even now. We're losing what happened beforehand. And the reason uh, and- we're doing this podcast today, why I want people, why we're doing this podcast is, you know, the Marines have a phrase, the body is capable of 20 times what you think it is. Maybe they say 40. I can't remember if it's 20 or 40, but we'll give the conservative number. The Marines say your body is capable of 20 times what you think it is. So the reason why we're looking at these rules and parameters isn't just a jaunt through history, which I find fascinating, even if we weren't going to aim for it, but so that Catholics out there can listen and know you're actually capable of a lot more. So maybe you pick the 16th century as you hear Matthew explain this. So the 13th century, or maybe you can even give, maybe you can be so generous you're living what what they were doing in apostolic times when you listen to it. 
to me, it doesn't really matter which century you pick. But as you listen to this, I want people to understand you're able by God's grace to do so much more than you think. And the rewards are so much greater. So that's the main reason we're looking at this is to see what Catholics believed by God's grace they were capable of in the past. And we think you are too today, actually. Exactly. It's not just a history lesson. That's what I tell people. I do find the history fascinating, but I want people to live it. That's why I have groups that, I mean, I have the book, not for a history lesson. There's whole things in the back about how do you implement it? What's the practical implement, uh, implementation of it? Because obviously we do, we want to do this because it's pleasing to our Lord. And, and he didn't just say, I'm going to teach you about fasting. He actually fasted. Okay. So, I mean, that's important. So uh, to continue history, 1741 just said big changes. You know, that was uh, significant changes, really, for instance, for Lenten fasting in particular. But let's go back a little bit forward. You know, let's talk about the Renaissance, you know, time in those centuries. So by the 14th century, the meal had moved uh, moved up. So that's when the meal taking place at noon actually fell. Beforehand, we'll talk about it actually was later. So by the 14th century, you could have your meal uh, at noon. Um, that's also why... We call 12 o'clock noon. That's the, you know, funny little um, trivia thing because certain, uh, you know, hours of the divine office would need to be prayed. The monks would finish up noon, which kind of sounds like noon, and they would move it up so they could have their meal at 12 o'clock. So it just entered into the way it's Because noon means means the ninth hour, which is 3 p.m. So even though noon means 3 p.m., custom changed it into the English meaning noon? Yes, because they would say that particular hour at shortly before 12 o'clock. So thus they would then move into the evening for Vespers and they would have their meal. So that's why we say noon at 12 o'clock. So if somebody's ever talking about a trivia and why, why is 12 o'clock noon? It has everything to do with Catholic fasting. Mr. Um, Please and his Catholic party tricks. I like it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so another thing too is, you know, the Renaissance also changed a lot of things. So in the Middle Ages, for instance, absence from meat on Fridays and throughout all of Lent was not just church law. It was civil law as well. It was actually a crime uh, to, to, you know, for instance, to sell and, you know, serve this meat to people on a prohibited day. The Protestant revolt, which really began in 1517 and continued through the 1600s, was a significant force to change that. Um, but one thing worth mentioning is that, you know, we look at the English uh, proclamations uh, that occurred after Henry V's, uh, you know, separation from the church. The, the, England, the country of England still continue to require abstinence from meat and actually made it part of um, of their law, even after the revolution in 1688 and the overthrow of Catholicism by William III and Mary II, those laws were no longer enforced, but they were not officially removed from the statute in England until 1863. So, but if you go ahead before and before, you know, 1631 and before, and it was actually still observed, even though Henry VIII had long since uh, revolted from the church, that discipline was still kept, but you had, as I talk about what motivated perhaps uh, Benedict XIV to change things. I do think the Renaissance and I do think the Protestant revolt uh, was part of that. And at the same time, too, we have the finding of the New World and all these missionaries going over there. And there was a whole different set of rules for the New World. And I'm not going to talk about it in any length now, but Spain had its whole list of exceptions, too. Because if you go back a little bit further in history to the Crusades, if you look up Bulla de la Crusada, the Crusade Bulls, there was one issue to grant the Spanish the exception of eating meat on Fridays throughout the year in one place, even on Good Friday. 
even on Ash Wednesday, they did not have to observe it because it was given as an exception to those people for everything they did in the Crusades. Uh, and that that wasn't just Spain. So certain parts, it began to apply to different colonies as well. It even applied to the Philippines, too. And, um, you know, we did a whole show in the Philippines. I go over it. I won't go over it now. But if you were a Filipino, it depends how, how your parents were. You know, if your parent, one was an English, uh, one was a settler from Europe and one was not, you'd have different rules that would apply to you. So it's very interesting how these crusade bulls to Spain and Europe affected a lot of the New World and affected wasn't, a lot of native. Wasn't people. one of these? Uh, wasn't one of these crusade lengths? Yes to dairy, no to meat for the crusaders. There was one of that. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So I mean, it changed a whole lot of things, and it found its, uh, its application here in America in that Native Americans had different fasting days and different days of absence from everybody else. And part of that was that the Pope at the time said, Native Americans do their harsh lifestyle already fast uh, so much of the year too. So, but really the same thing that applied to the Filipino natives applied to them. So we got all these changes here and you got this whole new world and you got the Protestant revolt. Thus that part of what accelerated these changes very quickly. So we talked about a whole lot of changes. You know, if you read the book, there's even more than we could ever talk about in here in the 1900s. And then you have the 1800s. But as you start rolling back the clock, we're rolling it back by the centuries now, not by the years or by the decades. So for a very long time, if you go back before, you know, I just said the 14th century, if you go back before into the Middle Ages, this is what St. Thomas Aquinas writes about. And this was the case for a long time. Mondays and Saturdays of Lent were days of fasting. The meal was taken at three o'clock in the afternoon and a collation was allowed at night. All meat and animal products was prohibited throughout all of Lent. Abstinence from these foods remained even on Sundays, therefore. Even though they're not days of fasting, they're days of absence. No food at all was to be taken on Ash Wednesday or Good Friday, if at all possible. So eat absolutely nothing at all. And Holy Week itself was a more intense fast. We could only have bread, salt, water, and herbs. So before the Renaissance, this is what we're talking about. So if you read in the Summa and you, uh, St. Thomas Aquinas is talking about the meals at three o'clock, that was the case. But by the 14th century, it was moved to noon. And by the 1917 code, the notion of fasting occurs at a certain time long since dropped. Uh, but even if you look at beforehand, the, there was a practice many people did so under obligation and it faded away by the 10th century that every Wednesday and Friday throughout the year should be kept as a day of fasting and a day of absence. That's why we have Friday absence now. It started in the early church as fasting and absence, and that's just the remnant of that. Wednesday absence was dropped centuries ago, too. I will just say, for the benefit of the Irish, they kept it longer, I think, than any other nation in the world. They kept it to the 17th century. Still, that last vestige of, it's a Wednesday, so therefore there's no meat allowed. They were the last place to really keep that under devotion. Yeah. So um, it is it is the case that, you know, a lot of people talk about, therefore, what time of the meal was, when Thomas Aquinas is talking about the time, three o'clock, and he says that's the hour of which our Lord died and such, so it makes sense, but soon afterwards it moved up to uh, the 12 o'clock hour. If you roll back the clock a little bit more, uh, you have, um, you know, I just said, you know, Thomas Aquinas said that the meal was at three and you could have collation in the evening. Well, the collation itself is not found in the early church. The collation has its origin in the year 817, and it first applied uh, to monks, so in the ninth century. The laws of... Um, 
fasting were kind of reduced at that time. So in the year 817, there was really monks of the Benedictine order because they did so much work in the fields and their farms. If you read books, you see how they cultivated really uh, Christian culture throughout all of Europe. They were allowed the ability during Lent to take a little morsel of bread and a drink in the evening. So the collation was originally a drink in the evening they would have. Uh, even, you know, it would be considered a pint of liquid to give them some strength. And uh, that was just for the monks in 1817. And then some years later, the church extended that law to the lady as well. So by the end of medieval times, it was a universal practice. Everybody ate a little evening meal. Well, you said 1817, you mean 817? You said yeah, 817. 817, yes. yep. Okay. Yes, so, so by the end, by the Middle Ages, really all the laity are having a little bit of an evening meal in addition to the main meal at noon. But collations introduced in the 8th century was the, if we rewind the clock, that was a major change to It was just one meal. And this is Father David Nix. If you're just joining us, we are halfway through Theology and Current Events, and we're looking at the history of fasting with Mr. Matthew, please. And if you're just joining us now, we're about to jump into the first millennium. We're actually going backwards in time on the rules of Catholic Lent what were the rules for the Catholic Church? And as we jump into the first millennium, this is going to be what was expected of all Christians in the first millennium during Lent, fasting parameters, fasting rules. Notice we're not just talking about monks. We're also talking about what was expected of lay people. So, Matthew, take us away as we rewind the clocks for the rules of Catholic Lent in the first yes. millennium. So what's interesting is as you're listening to this, I hope you're understanding that so many people say like, oh, the rules were harder, you know, for my grandparents or maybe a little bit before them. Like we've rewound the clock a lot. Imagine people in the Middle Ages saying like, oh, wow, you know, my grandparents, you know, I heard it was harder back then. So, I mean, like we just have it so much easier right now. So as you think about everything, you'd have to add back to get to the time of our Lord. You know, you should be inspired. I really hope somebody's inspired to say I should pick up some of these because I really have such a reduced small amount to build back up because we're only building back up as we're going through the centuries. I'm not talking about, oh, you know, we have it's you know, so much harder in this respect. Now, this is all like, wow, it was actually harder. It was harder. It was harder. So when we rewind the clock, I just talked about the history of the collation, you know, it was introduced in 817, originally for monks and it applied the laity and that was allowed the a morsel really in the evening. But Let's go back beforehand to the time of St. Gregory Great, you know, and at that point, there is no collation. So it is just your meal. When is that meal had? It's had after sunset. Um, so it's not three o'clock uh, around that time. It was around the sundown hour that you would finally break your fast. Uh, as you know, we talked about before 1741, no flesh meat at all, no animal products as well. Um, no seafood allowed too. So you cannot have rich seafood. So shellfish that was not allowed until the 10th century. So Gregory the Great's time, that was not the case. He was actually the one that first allowed simple fish to be had during Lent on a day of abstinence. So, or really on any day of abstinence. So we think so much about it's Friday, we'll have fish. Well, you know, we're talking about the time of Gregory the Great for hundreds of years beforehand, not even fish was allowed in days of absence. So people say that the early church, the apostles were all fishermen. It was just a, a lobbying effort to, you know, to boost their income, to get away with me. It's really absurd. You know, they have been dead for hundreds of years before a day of absence. You could even have fish. That's a, that's a really interesting modern myth uh, that American Protestants and a lot of American Catholics have believed is, you know, this just had to do with uh, 
well, there's a lot of weird fish connections, a lot of weird modern myths. Um, so this notion, here's another one of the modern myths. So this notion that the Knights of Columbus can have a fish fry and you can have like eight giant pieces of fish on a Friday, not in the spirit of Lent, huh? Right. No, and, and that's why I would say even if you fulfill the minimum, you know, now or the minimum in the 1900s and you're going out to fish fries, I mean, it's great to support your local parish, you know, or community or uh, with, with going to these, but it really defeats the spirit if you're going out and having a great meal. I mean, it should be a very simple meal. As we're rewinding the clock, days of absence were actually vegan. So remember, this is when fish is coming in, but you had no animal products. You had no meat. When you take fish out, you really had a, had a, had a vegan uh, um, situation. And that's really how uh, days of absence were. And in fact, beforehand, it was um, you know, when he first allowed fish, he really said it was like in necessity only, you know, not just like, oh, have whatever fish you want. But, you know, there is actually no other substitute. You you can have, you know, some fish, but simple fish only, not anything too luxurious at all. Um, and as I, and hear you, as I hear you say all this, really what I'm hearing is Catholics were expected to be in the desert with Jesus. You know, there's a yeah. Protestant, the Protestant notion is Jesus paid for it all by himself on the cross and that's actually the Catholic notion, too. People probably thought I was going to say that's not it. Of course, we as Catholics believe um, Jesus paid the entire price by even just one drop of his precious blood. Jesus on the cross paid the price for all of our sins. But the difference in Catholicism is on top of the free grace that Protestants believe. We also believe that that grace gives us the opportunity to enter into Christ's suffering in redemptive suffering. If anyone wants to look this up, they can find it in Colossians one twenty four. I make up in my body what is wanting in the sufferings of Christ, which is for the sake of his body, which is the church. Well, what's wanting, what's lacking? Nothing. Nothing's wanting in Christ's sufferings except my participation. And so because we don't believe, or rather I should put in the positive, because we are called to be other little Christs, we're supposed to be in the desert these 40 days. In other words, it's supposed to hurt. It's supposed to actually be hungry. Jesus, we don't just say, well, Jesus was in the desert so I could go to my Knights of Columbus fish fry and have eight pieces of fish because Jesus already paid the price. Uh, okay, no, we're called to be, and this is what I hear as you're taking us back to the first millennium, we're actually supposed to enter into the same Lent Jesus did, almost. I mean, he, mm -hmm. you know, we have to have enough to keep body and soul together, but that seems to almost be the goal you're describing is we're supposed to be hungry for all of Lent, but with enough to keep body and soul together. Right. And you should obviously be engaging in prayer as well. So prayer was practiced to a greater extent, too. If you re we didn't talk about that, but if you rewind time, people prayed more. People prayed more. Even the divine office was actually memorized by some of the lady in the very early church who were working in the fields and the bell would sound and, you know, the monks or would, would pray the divine office and they would memorize the psalm so they could join with that prayer that they know was being said, but they were working right then. So prayer was practiced to a great extent too. We could talk about, you know, obviously the stations too coming up with the Franciscan tradition. Obviously we haven't had the stations for all 2000 years of the church, but uh, there's so much to be said about the great uh, traditions we have now to observe Lent, but it very much is a desert. Um, and that's why all of Lent for all time is inappropriate to go to parties. I tell people you shouldn't be going out to concerts, shouldn't be going out to venues. You shouldn't be having parties, no gatherings, postpone all that. You know, there was a reason that we had Mardi Gras, that we had uh, hopefully a um, not an inappropriate Mardi Gras, like it's been in excess, but a time to like, oh, I mean, I really like this food. I'm going to have this. I'm going to have that birthday party now for my you know, friend's birthday that falls in a few weeks. You know, I'm going to have it now because Lent is the desert. And this is something that was very much emphasized for a long time by um, the church that Lent is the tithe of the year. 
we read about that in matins as well. So, you know, people would give so much of their time and their talent, but this is really a tithe of the year. So, but beforehand, so Ash Wednesday started uh, the name Ash Wednesday about the year 1099. Uh, beforehand, though, it was the beginning of, uh, before it really became the beginning of fasting, uh, Sunday and Lent was really the beginning of of Lent because Ash Wednesday was added so that way there would be 40 days uh, of fasting. Um, but, you know, some of the saints even talked about like, oh, if we did math and you had roughly 36 days of fasting and there's 362 days in the year, that's basically a tithe of the year we're giving. So obviously we increased it to 40 days. Um, but uh, there is a lot to be said about the penitential spirit of going to our Lord in the desert. And if our Lord is in the desert, and we're preparing to go with him to Calvary. It's not appropriate to have these parties. You know, I'm going to go out to all this fish fries or e- even like, you know, mac and cheese and these egg and cheese sandwiches. They're, that's great, I think, for Fridays throughout the year. But during Lent, I do not eat them because for so long we did not have any animal products. And I think there's a lot to be said of that. So that was Let's go back to the history. You know, that's the time of Gregory the Great. Uh, back beforehand, though, if we go like around the Council of Nicaea, you know, around the fifth century, what's important to note is that um, not even water was allowed outside the time of the meal. So that's something that's going to be less surprising. I'll talk about that uh, in a second. But then you also have the Passion Fast that was still practiced at the time. The Passion Fast referred specifically to the 40-hour of intense fasting on Good Friday until we celebrate the resurrection on Easter. So people were um, really implored, if they're physically able to, to eat absolutely nothing. Uh, I do see a little bit of vestiges of this still. So I found a bulletin from a uh, the Archdiocese of Toronto at the end of the 1800s. And it didn't say the Passion Fast, but it said that because our Lord died on Good Friday, um, it asked all the faithful to not consume any alcoholic beverages on Good Friday. Because, well, I think everybody probably should give up all alcohol for all of Lent, but it, it was at least in there. I don't see any modern, um, you know, rubrics talking about that, but some so would that, even. Was take, that 40, was that 40 hours uh, passion fast? Was that also no water for those 40 days? Uh, uh, for the 40 hours? 40 hours, sorry. 40 hours. Yeah, yeah for 40 days would be a little bit too <laughs> too, too long. But, uh, but it yeah, does say in the Bible, our Lord, our Lord went out, I mean. That's we're going to go into a lot of supernatural stuff with that. But our Lord went without water for the 40 days. It's very clear in the gospel. I mean, no, sorry, Moses did. And there's no reason to believe obviously Jesus would have done less. But I just read uh, Genesis and Exodus in the NTSI plan. And, and Moses went without water for those 40 days. Um, but yeah, no, is the passion fast supposed to be 40 hours without water? That I don't know for sure, but it was 40 without food, without, uh, food. without food. And obviously that was because our Lord was in the tomb for 40 hours. So some of what we're talking about isn't just arbitrary. The churches yep. and just saying 40 is an important number. Do it. Our Lord uh, was in the tomb. So basically long. what you're describing, let me just give a little summary at this point. So basically for most, I mean, you're, you're the expert of a lot of these different uh, regional exceptions and caveats and stuff. But what I'm hearing is most Catholics for most of 2000 years were expected to live vegan Lent, And of those vegan meals, or of those vegan lents, you really only got one meal a day and that had to be vegan. Correct. And it was in the evening for a long time. It was, you know, after sunset, it got moved it to three. You could have it as early as noon, but basically you have one meal a day and, and it was vegan. And then all these exceptions come in to, well, maybe it doesn't need to be vegan for you or for you, or now 1700, you can have meat some of the time. So, but the notion of it's Lent, you don't have meat. 
You don't even have animal products. You have one meal, uh, important. And this is something I even found in the, uh, theology manuals from the early 1900s. People would talk about very intently, like, well, how long could the meal be? Like, what happens if somebody's having their meal here, have an appetizer, let me, or another appetizer? The meal's going on for hours and hours and hours. You know, that defeats the whole purpose of the spirit. So a lot of the, a theologians said the meal should be no more than two hours. Uh, that would be enough time in order uh, for you to eat. And same thing with the early church, too. They would wait till after the sunset to have their refreshment. They would have their water then uh, and their food. Um, so something that I encourage people to do is, you know, as you easing into Lent, you know, as you're listening to it now, you can pick up the, the mantle right now and say, well, I'm not going to have meat for the rest of Lent. I'm going to try to have no animal products for the rest of Lent, too, uh, to try to observe that. I am. Um, Perhaps going to have my meal and wait till the sun goes down, or at least until the evening. I'm going to forego, if I can, the collation and the frustula. I'm going to just have the one meal. Meal itself won't take longer than two hours. As I said, try to wait till later in the day. I found that physically it's also better to wait for me. You know, like if you had a morning frustula, just start your metabolism, I feel like. It's, for me, it's better to wait uh, until the evening. But you and still have to why it's so good. I mean, God, God knew how we were rewired, maybe not rewired, but he knew our weakness of concupiscence that followed after original sin, as you mentioned at the beginning of this podcast. And this is where, this is why the West has stuff to adjust in the season. In the East, it's meat fair Sunday when you give up meat several weeks before Lent starts. And then the the, the West has uh, sex, sex adjustment season. I think that's usually lining up with like cheese fair in the East. Mm-hmm. When again, before the great fast, before Lent, they're already dialing down any use or er, really eradicating any, any use of dairy. So I, I may not 100% agree with you since we're going to be airing this the Monday after the second Sunday of Lent, that it's mm-hmm. certainly not too late to jump in. But for free, future right. years, this is your preseason, you know, Septuagesima in the West and uh, Meat Fair Sunday in the East. This is your preseason uh, because it takes some time for the body, for most people at least, yeah. to uh, to wean themselves from their gastronomical addictions. And in, in the Septuagesima season, I, I wrote an article on this for A Catholic Life at, where I talked about some areas of Europe would kind of practice Septuagesima as a, as a period of fasting to wean into it. So certain areas actually would, the Poles would, for instance, be much better at this. So, um, you know, if you're listening to it now, try, try to adopt some of those, you know, try to do fasting. You know, but most people probably don't even do fasting all of Lent for sure. So try to do that. Try to go without meat, of course, for all of Lent. And then... Um, you know, something that I do is I do have water throughout the day, you know, except uh, the way I'm going to do it this year is uh, during Holy Week, not have water except at the meal. So I, I knew you year, were a modernist. I knew you were a modernist. <laughs> every year I try to make my land a little bit harder. You know, I always awesome. wish we'd have it a little bit harder because, yeah, if you listen to this, and you're like, I'm going to do Lent exactly as it was in the year 300. You might fail because your body's not used to it. You know, sometimes you have to wean That's yourself right. because of the way our culture is, our diets are, our families. You might just need to each year add something in. Obviously, it's not under obligation now. I mean, you could have dairy throughout. So Lent, what did it forgive me if you've already done this? Because I know you mentioned pre Pope St. Gregory the Great. I think he was what, yes. fifth, sixth century pope. Correct. Maybe you've already covered this, but I guess. Uh, my last question is, what did it look like in the very early church and apostolic times? Maybe, maybe it's the same rules you gave as pre-Gregory the Great, but give us the first 500 years of, if you have the sure. records on that. I don't know if you have the records. Well, I mean, we do have something, so I cover that in the book, The Definitive Guide to Catholic Fasting and Absence. So if you go back, uh, you know, beforehand, the one thing I'll know besides um, 
you know, water uh, that's really, you know, strange to a lot of people is wine was actually also not permitted. So wine became more widely permitted than water. <laughs> actually, you might say in a, in a certain sense. And why? I think it's really important to understand a lot of the rationale of these things. So what was the rationale of the early church? The church saw the, the gift of wine and the gift of flesh meat as God's gift to man after the flood, because Noah was the first one to ever eat flesh meat. Yes. He was also the, uh, given the ability to make wine. So what did the church do? The church said those were God's consolation and gifts to us. So during this period of penance, we will take away those gifts and we will go back to the diet and practice beforehand. So that's also why, for instance, you talk about the East. The East does not have wine during Lent. Why? For that reason. And I think a lot of people, too, could voluntarily give up wine uh, for all of Lent, too, for that same uh, rationale. In the very early church, Lent was practiced. That actually might be surprising to to a lot of people, but the early church uh, kept Lent this. So Dom Geringer talks about that, that there was a fast which preceded uh, Easter, and that originated with the apostles themselves. So the 40-day fast that we call Lent was instituted at the very beginning of Christianity. In fact, our you can say our blessed Lord uh, sanctioned it by fasting 40 days and 40 nights in the desert. But Dom Geringer adds that our, our blessed Lord did not impose it on the world by express commandment, which he says in that case, could have been therefore open to no power of dispensation. It would have been the divine law. But he showed plainly enough by his own example that fasting, which God so frequently ordered in the old law, was to be practiced also by the children of the new. But the apostles would be the ones to legislate it for our weakness at the beginning of the Christian church. So that way there could be dispensations and exceptions given for the benefit of weak man over the centuries. So, um, the apostolic origin of Lent, of course, is attested by many sources. St. Jerome says it, St. Leo the Great says it, St. Cyril of Alexandria and others. In the second century, St. Irenaeus wrote to Pope St. Victor I inquiring on how Easter should be celebrated, mentioning the immemorial fasting that led up to Easter, even by his point in the second century. Now, initially, the Lenten fast practice was practiced by catechumens who were preparing for their baptism with a universal fast for the faithful that was observed during Holy Week. So the faithful would observe this fast during Holy Week, preparing for our Lord's celebration of Easter, because Easter has been celebrated since the beginning of the church. And catechumens would have a longer fast as they would prepare to become Christians and receive baptism. The duration of the fast varied. Some churches observed a couple days, some one day. Others said it was 40 hours of intense fasting in honor of our Lord's 40 hours in the tomb. But by the third and fourth century, the fast became 40 days in many places. And St. Athanasius, he was in the year 339, referenced the Lenten fast as uh, many places, the 40-day fast that he said the whole world uh, observed. So the very early church, we had this practice of catechumens would fast to prepare for baptism. So and you're saying people the, wanted to join that. So they therefore joined that and the apostles themselves did as well. So you're saying the early church was not charismatic Protestants. That's That's amazing. <laughs> Yes. Um, yeah, they, so they thing, were not at all. One it, thing I mean, it's important misled. to prepare for, it's important to fast and prepare for uh, important things. We see that. Yeah. Before baptism, they're fasting. The notion of before you do something, you fast. Look at Moses fasting 40 days before he receives the Ten Commandments. We even see that in the middle of the 1900s. I didn't talk about that. Before your parish was dedicated, though, the parish priest and the faithful who petitioned and asked for your parish to be consecrated by the bishop were ordered 
to fast the day before the bishop came. So that's kind of like the one of those last examples of we're preparing for something that must be a fast ordered. And that kind of went away. But in the 1950s, even that was practice. So if your parish down the road needs consecrated, you would all fast the day before. So as I hear you talk about how Christ wanted us all fasting, but gave it to the apostles to do this specific legislation, I realize I may have misled people an hour ago on the whole East-West thing. As I hear you say that, that makes me think Eastern bishops like St. John Chrysostom, who both Catholics and Eastern Orthodox claim as their own at this point because he was pre-schism, um, someone like St. John Chrysostom, an Eastern bishop in the 6th century, he would have then given rule. It must not have just been a, a free-for-all, be super generous in the East. There must have been some some rules even Eastern bishops gave, or am I am I wrong on that too? No, there were de- there were absolutely definitely um, rules at that point that applied to everyone. For instance, we're talking obviously uh, about Lent, um, you know, right now, but so much could be could be said, you know, about uh, other periods. But you know, Saint Athanasius said that the Lenten fast was a forty-day fast that the whole world uh, observed. So everybody. Uh, is doing so, even though the particulars of other things, you know, could change over time. The, that is very much legislated, but the church, obviously, through bishops, had had these other um, traditions and such. Uh, even the Armenians had different okay. customs too over time. So, if you go back, though, there's that notion of you know people do have rules. It's not just your Eastern whatever you want uh, uh, applies. I actually read a lot of these different Eastern rules in their code of canon law to factor some of that into my book as well. Because I think it's important to understand all of Christendom. How did we get to the state we're in now? So the East wasn't just super high ideals. There was actually rules in the East also. Correct. There were rules. But they've always looked at, at least for a long time, they've looked at the rules as more guidelines, you know, that is the rule. And you you are implored to do that. But, you know, we don't maybe need to give you an express dispensation. You know, you you dispense from that because, you know, the rule and thus, you know, the exception. Mm -hmm. Whereas in the West, it's a little bit more uh, certainly in the Middle Ages, even early Middle Ages. Uh, clear on that. But the, the fact remains that early Christians practiced fasting. It was performed until sundown. Why? In imitation of the previous Jewish tradition. Dom Garange also mentions that it was the custom of the Jews in the old law to take one meal allowed on fasting days after sunset. And the Christian church adopted that same custom. And they practiced it scrupulously for many centuries, even in our own uh, Western countries. Um, and you told so me they, on the phone that was something that the uh, Muslims stole from the Jews and the Christians. The whole Ramadan, most people probably know Ram- Ramadan is fasting uh, all through the day and you can eat it. And I've seen Muslims party all night, all the things they gave up. And then they, you know, they sleep all day and they party all night. But I guess we Catholics can't really rip on legalism with how minimal we're doing. But you're telling me Ramadan was taken from. Yeah, that is exactly how fasting was practiced at the time, too, because you would have no water and no food until the evening. Okay. Uh, until after sunset. Uh, and and again, it was like like I talked about now, people talk about two hours with a meal. Well, you'd have your meal, you sit down, mm-hmm. and after you're done with your meal, well, the fast starts again. doesn't matter if it's still night, you're fasting till the meal the next day. You've had your refreshment. It very much is the marathon mentality. It's a marathon. Not a sprint. Yeah. It's, it, is, it is a marathon. And, um, and so just like, to read just to recap something I said about 15 minutes ago. So I just, I want everyone to hear that for most of Christianity, most Catholics lay and monastic were living on one vegan meal a day for the 40 days of Lent. Just to recap that. And, you know, I think I want to give a theological point here. 
there's a lot of people that they, they start to enter into a fast and then the devil puts it in their mind that because they want to lose a little weight or because they want to get a little healthier, they shouldn't do the fast. So they're just not going to be generous because they're questioning their intention. Maybe I shouldn't say there's a lot of people, but I know, I know how the devil can move us away from penance by making us question our own intentions. Well, here's my encouragement of that. As long as your main intention is to do it for God, for love of God, you can have several other daisy chained intentions onto that. You're fasting. That is as long as they're not bad intentions. So let's say, let's say you read at one point, And I think this is true. If you do a three or five day water fast, it gets rid of so many toxins that, that cause cancer. Let's say you, you find that a five day water fast greatly reduces your chance of cancer. Um, but you also want to do it for love of God, love of God, your primary intention, your secondary is to not get cancer. That's totally fine. Don't stop your fast or refrain from a very good fast just because you have secondary good intentions because God has wired the cross that we carry, not just to get us to heaven, but I keep discovering more and more that the cross we carry actually leads to more happiness, not just before we get to the topic of heaven and hell. That should be obvious if you carry your cross, you got a much better chance. You will get to, you will get to heaven if you carry your cross, but even already on earth, there are so many benefits to fasting. Right. I I mean, in the book, too, I mentioned my book a couple of times, The Definitive Guide to Catholic Fasting and Absence. Well, the second edition that I published has a whole section on just the health benefits of fasting, because it's almost like God shows us that by observing fasting, you therefore have these benefits. And we've been talking a lot about uh, the Lenten fast. Obviously, we're not going to talk about all these other vigils throughout the year that are required. You got the Advent fast uh, that was observed in the East and the West uh, for a long time. You had the Apostles fast in the summer. You had the two-week fast called the Assumption fast before Our Lady's Assumption Day in August. So, but if you add all that up and understanding that if it was a fasting day, it was also a day of absence, for a long time, you could say that to be a Christian, you needed to fast one-third of the year and abstain from meat two-thirds of the year. So and that, that one-third and two-third are overlapping, though? Correct. It is overlapping because, remember, if it is a fasting yeah. day, it is a day of absence. So two-thirds of the year is, is abstinence, and one-third of that is Amazing. also still a fasting day. So there's so much to be had there, and there's so many physical benefits, uh, of course, but I will. And, I mean, it's amazing. If you if you were to encourage people, I mean, there's going to be people, people hearing this saying, well, you guys are rigorous and you're Jansenistic. Well, hold on. Jansenism was a, an 18th century heresy. If If the first thousand years of Christians were doing this, and these are the people that were working miracles and made a billion converts, how is that Jansenism? It just doesn't, right. it doesn't add up historically to say this is rigorism and Jansenism if this is what the early church did. Right. I mean, our Lord wants us to fast more, so why not use the roadmap in front of us for what uh, Christianity did for so long? That's what I encourage people. So the charts that I, I talk about, like, look at all we've lost. You don't just say, wow, that's interesting. Look how hard it was back then and say, like, well, it's the same religion now as then. And if they actually believed it and, and did that, why can I not do at least some of that? And and to go on to what you said, the intention is important. So if somebody is fasting, they should be praying more. Very clear, because if you're like, I'm going to do all this fast and you're praying less, then it's really more like a diet. You know, if you're not also giving alms and you're also not emphasizing the prayer element like we do during Lent, it's hard to say it's a fast, not a diet. And I wouldn't encourage people to do this, but I know a layman who did a 40 day water fast and he only supplemented it with salt, minerals. Um, I think he may have had like a little bit of herbal tea with some lemon juice in it just to keep some bugs away and keep probably a tiny bit of uh 
citrus in his system, but he basically did uh, actually it was 41 or 42 days of 41 or 42 day water fast, just supplemented with some salt minerals, maybe a little bit of uh, vitamins, maybe a tiny bit of herbal tea. Um, and so it's possible. Again, I'm not telling people that's what they should do. I did, I did, uh, his friend actually encouraged me or was, he was going to do a five day water fast just a few weeks ago. And I joined him for the first three days. And they said, you know, by day three or even two, that's pretty much the plateau of how hungry you get. And I found that was true that if you can make it to two day two on a really intense, like water fast, you are hungry at day three, four, five, six, seven, eight, but it kind of plateaus off after, after day two. So I'm not saying, well, you should just be looking for it to become easy, but it kind of goes back to what I was saying about the Marines. The Marines say you're capable of 20 times what you're, what you think you are. Um, I think the big key physiologically, I guess, I mean, you need God's grace to do, this is a good Catholic guy who did 40 days on water. Um, you obviously need God's grace to do something like that, but physiologically, I think the real key to a real generous fast is to overhydrate, drink water, drink water, drink water. And between water and God's grace, you'll be shocked what you can do. Mm -hmm. I, I, so you mentioned before, so I do run an online telegram group. So, I mean, and because I do that, because I want people to feel like you're not alone, you know, you're not out there in the desert alone. Uh, What's the name of that channel? Uh, It's called the fellowship of St. Nicholas. So if you go to one Peter com backslash fast, and you scroll down, you can join the telegram group, but we basically broke up to, you want to fast more? Well, we have different tiers with, you know, people in these different tiers. So you're committing to at least tier one uh, to join, but it, you could go uh, a bit further too. So uh, you can read there, but basically people sure. are, you know, you don't want to go right into, I can't give up all these animal products and everything right now and eat after sunset. Well, there's different tiers. So you can work your way into it over time. But the important thing to know is you're not alone. We have more than 400 people already in that. And if you have a question, if you want encouragement, if you want recipes, uh, if you want prayers, like it's all in there too. So it's important to know that you're not alone in this. We're trying to do this, like we talked about in that share community. To so what I'll it. do is in the show notes, I'll link uh, your telegram channel. And then I notice you have two websites. If I just put up a Catholic life, is there an easy way for people to find how to purchase your book on Catholic fasting? Um, there, I believe there should be. Yeah. So I run the acatholiclife.blogspot.com uh, page. Um, so if you go to that um, website, a lot of my articles are actually on fasting. Uh, but if you scroll down a little bit on the right hand side, uh, there is a pick uh, to the book, uh, the guide to Catholic fasting uh, as well. So of all the books you've but, written, what, what's the one you want people to read? What's the one you're most proud of? What's the one you want people to read? Because you've written like five, 10 books. Um, yeah. Um, the fasting one is the one I'm most proud of because I feel like nobody else talks about it. So, I, I mean, I really love, for instance, my guide to uh, the Catechism of the Council of Trent. I'm happy that Bishop Schneider endorsed it. People are reading it because I wanted to make the teachings of the Catechism of the Council of Trent known to people, but applying it to the modern eras of the world today. You know, you got communism, you got socialism, you have all these materialisms. So this is the perennial wisdom of the Catechism. How do we apply it today? Understanding it, using the Catechism and other ones to supplement it. I like that. I think that's very important for for what I'm going to put in the show notes for everyone is a Catholic life.com. That's Matthew's website. You can scroll down and get his book. And if you think like me, you always want to know how is the Holy spirit function through history, through the popes, through the Holy fathers, through the saints and the ascetical life. As Matthew mentioned, this is like the, the third uh, leg of a stool between doctrine and liturgy. 
the ascetical life is really how you come close to God. And again, there's Protestants out there that say that's Pelagianism, that's pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps. But there's a lot of Protestants who've discovered, wait a minute, fasting is in like every book of the Bible. We can't dismiss that as Pelagianism since this is this is everywhere. So in the show notes, I'm going to link um, Matthew's website. You can scroll down the bottom right. He said you can get that. And then the uh, Telegram channel. Uh, so you can follow 400. I also subscribe to that. And you kind of see where uh, you want to jump in with all this. And um, what else, Matthew? Anything else? I got eight minutes on my free Zoom recording thing. So uh, we'll start to wrap this up. What else do you got to say? Um, so also just if you go to that, um, the onepeter5.com backslash fast, um, there's a link to the book there too. And, and very large in the middle of the page. So that might be the best uh, uh, place to get it as well. But, um, you know, with all of this, I really liked writing the book. I love uh, writing these articles about it because I feel like nobody really knows much about it. Nobody likes really doesn't even know about it. And I've reached out to many people to talk about it because I think it's so important to understand a forgotten history and to bring it back. But with so many things, it's not, not just the history. You have to live it out. Uh, if you don't live it out, it's really worthwhile. Thomas Aquinas talked about all of his summa was, you know, as straw compared to actually knowing God. So yeah, you it's, come it's interesting. It, and that's the thing is like, when you give up food and drink and all this stuff, when you do your mental prayer, when you do your your gospel reading, your catechism, it's like the spiritual vision, everything just clears up. You know, when you fast hardcore, the the spiritual insight, and we don't do it for spiritual highs, but I will say when you fast, the spiritual insights are so unbelievably clear. Yeah. The blood sugar might be a little bit lower. People have to diff- balance different things. I take mm-hmm. agave in the morning because it's like low on the glycemic scale, but it's not going to like bottom me out later. Um, the spiritual insight you have, you know, I would say the number one question we traditional priests get from people is this family member left the Catholic faith or this member left the Catholic faith, or I'm worried about my uncle's salvation, or I'm worried about my daughter's salvation. What can I do? Remember our lady of Fatima already answered that. She said, many people go to hell because there's no one to pray for them and to do penance for them. And so mm-hmm. The penance that's probably best for your body, not that we're necessarily looking for that, but the penance that is best for your body, but probably most valuable in the eyes of God is fasting. And so combine these things. I mean, enter generously into Lent and do it for one family member or your entire family to come back to Christ in the Catholic Church. We know that penance wins souls to God. It's right out of the Bible. It's right out of Our Lady of Fatima. And so that's an additional reason why people should really heed these messages. If you're worried about family members who left the Catholic faith, do what you can. People have different levels of blood sugar, different problems. Not everybody can do the same thing, mm-hmm. but push yourself, stay well hydrated and offer that for the salvation of your loved ones. Right. And of course, do it in the state of grace too. So, I mean, it does no profit at all if you're in mortal sin to, to do any of this. So of course, during Lent, especially, you should be going to confession more often. So that should be said, too. And obviously, too, if you have a more simple diet, you're not living on this luxurious seafood and everything. You're more simple, basic diet, bread, vegetables, basically rice, stuff like that. You're going to be spending less money likely on food. And therefore, you're spending less money. You have more money to give to Lenten alms to help those in your family or other people. So it's all very intertwined. You have more free time because you're not eating, so you can pray more, and you have more money because you're not buying food, so you can give it to those who need it. The church is not just saying do three completely, totally separate things. They're all very integrated. The church fathers really did integrate prayer, fasting, and almsgiving, and it's so practical. Once you're actually living it, 
it becomes so clear. You have more time and money. The time's supposed to go to God and the money from your food's supposed to go to the poor. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it's almost like God designed a perfect system called Catholicism. <laughs> and Lent is, is really the, the boot camp the soul needs. So if That's you feel right. like you are a, a little uh, growing um, lack of devotion, or if you want to free your mind to contemplate heavenly things, I say in Thomas Aquinas talks about fasting is a key to that. And I just wish more priests knew about it and uh, they would tell the faithful about it. Because I feel like when I do tell the faithful, people are like, why would nobody ever told me this or, or, or any of this? And I feel like if more priests would just say, you understand this is what was practiced for a long time. If you want to observe it, a lot more people would say, I'd like to, to do something. I can do something for salt. That's what I'll do. And if you are one last practical thing, you know, this guy that I know that did the 60, uh, 41, 42 days of a water fast. I think he, he probably edited on Easter and then he had a slice of pizza. It landed him in the hospital. Um, and they found out that a lot of the American GIs, when they were um, liberating people from Auschwitz, Many, many of those people died because um, their body couldn't handle the food. So if you do enter into a very generous Lent, ease your way on it. I know, you know, many saints have said things like you can't feast well unless you fast well. And I love that. I 100% support that. You can't feast well unless you fast well. But if you go hardcore in Lent, ease your way in. Don't just slam Mm -hmm. your body with a prime rib and a six pack and a box of donuts because you will end up in the hospital um, you mentioned to me off the air that your first Pete, your first meal coming out was fish. We got three minutes left on the free zoom. Tell us, tell us why you had, uh, you eased your way in on Easter with a piece of fish. Most people would say, wait, wait, that's, that's a good Friday. Yeah. So that's a Friday thing. Why did you, why'd you come? Why did you ease yourself into food again on, yeah. on Easter with fish? So um, if you read the Gospels, obviously, that was the first meal our Lord had after his resurrection with his apostles was fish. So that was my connection of going through the cross and going through the suffering of Good Friday and Holy Week and everything. And it almost felt like being there with our Lord, you know, to have that fish. You know, that was the meal he chose to have because uh, he really actually had a meal. So that was the spiritual connection with that. So with a lot of these things, obviously, there needs to be a spiritual element to him it's not a diet so that's how i i came out of it and that's how i look forward to coming out of it uh you know again this year um, thanks for that. joining us matthew and he's at uh, a catholic life he also does catechesis and he wrote the definitive guide to catholic fasting we're really thankful that you've enlightened us uh through the centuries of what the catholic rules of fasting were okay well god bless you all and thanks for joining us matthew thank you father appreciate it